Today we'll be looking at uh, Lesson 3, which begins on page 29. As we pursue our series, the title of which is on the slide behind me, How to Help Those Who Struggle with Fear and Anxiety. That would apply to all of us, of course. So helping ourselves, but in turn having a handle on it ourselves, we'll be able to help others with it, hopefully also. Fear is nurtured, says Ed Welch, author. He says, fear is nurtured in ignorance. Now, ignorance is sometimes thrown around as an epithet, uh, you know, just to call somebody a name, you're ignorant, but it's a perfectly fine word, it just means I don't know, uh, to not know. And so fear is nurtured when we don't know, is the idea. So if I, I don't know much about snakes, and I see a garter snake, you may freak, we may freak out, but if you're a herpetologist, who knows all about snakes and knows uh, that a garter snake is perfectly harmless, then he'll be happy to pick the thing up and play with it. So fear is, is nurtured in ignorance. If I get on a 747 and the thing is full and people are trying to find extra places to stuff things in the overhead compartment, you are thinking to yourself, if you don't know much about planes, there is no way this thing gets off the ground. If it does get off the ground, it can't stay up very long. But if you know just a little bit about uh, aerodynamics, you know we're, we're going to be fine. Knowledge helps with, with fear. Fear is nurtured when what we don't know in, in ignorance. And what we, when we don't know God, we fear. When we don't know about God, we don't know how God acts, we don't know who He is and, and whether He is capable and how much He cares. When I don't know those things, then I fear. So fear is rooted in what I don't know, and in particular, what I don't know about God will make me powerfully fearful. And so if I think that God is like me, He's impatient, He's incapable, perhaps uh, uncaring, then indeed I will, I will fear. And one way for us to know what we think about God is to analyze how we talk to God, assuming we do talk to God. Assuming you pray and you talk to God, think about how you do that, how you address Him. Because the way we address God suggests what we think about Him, what we know about Him. And Jesus said as much back in uh, Matthew chapter 6. Today, beginning on page 29, we're going to look at Luke chapter 12, which is Luke's version of the disciples' prayer. Luke 12 contains much of the same material that you have in Matthew 6 in your Bible. But I'm going to look at, for a bit, Matthew 6, because Matthew has some additional information that Luke does not include that is important for us in this context. Fear is nurtured in, in ignorance, in what I don't know about God. And what I know or don't know about God will often be revealed in the way I talk to Him, in the way I pray. And in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus actually tells us how to pray. So we call it the Lord's Prayer, more accurately the Disciples' Prayer. Here's a prayer that Jesus is giving to His followers to say, pray this way. But in Matthew chapter 6, He gives some information before He says, here's how to pray. He tells you how not to pray. 
So we're going to read that in just a bit. But years ago, I read a phrase about prayer that has stuck with me. It's been helpful to me, perhaps to you. That every misconception about prayer is first a misconception about God. That every time we pray in a way that has misconceptions in it, it's because we first have a misconception about God, and then that in turn translates into the way we speak to and about God. So whether or not I know God accurately is often going to be reflected in the way I pray about Him and to Him. So Matthew 6, verse 5. Jesus says, When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. Now, if this every misconception about prayer is first a misconception about God, then that's obviously a misconception about prayer. Jesus says, don't pray this way. So what misconception about God underlies that? That I'm going to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men, as if God is impressed with my status. As if I somehow get to jump the line on the queue that is the prayers of the universe because I've got a position vis-a-vis other people as it relates to other people. But when you pray, verse 6, go into your room, close the door, pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. If I know about God, I know that God does does not cater to pride. Quite the contrary. God hates pride. And God loves humility. Verse 7, when you pray, here's another way not to pray. Do not keep on babbling like pagans. For they think they will be heard because of their many words. That's a misconception about prayer. If I just if I just keep badgering God, then he's just gonna, you know, give in. Well, what misconception is there about God in that? That God is sort of, you know, a slot machine. If you put in enough coins, finally you're gonna hit the jackpot. So we're treating God in a completely inappropriate way because we have a misconception about Him. Therefore, we pray in these misconceived ways. Do not keep on babbling like pagans. Now, let me just say, you know, without being unnecessarily hurtful, aren't there people who just do this all the time? The more you repeat it, the better off you'll be. Say so many, our fathers, say so many, right? When I was a kid, uh, I grew up Pentecostal, most of you know. We used to have these songs. I mean, we used to get down when we we sang. And we're clapping, we're moving. That's what Pentecostals do. Not saying that's wrong, that's just what we did. And so the songs we sang were kind of down-home sorts of songs. One of them was, Have a Little Talk with Jesus. Anybody know that song, Have a Little Talk with Jesus? All right, thank you for that confession. And... The uh, the chorus, the refrain in that said, "You will when you feel a little prayer wheel turning, you'll know a little fire is burning, and have a little talk with Jesus to make it right. When you feel a little prayer wheel turning, you'll know a little fire is burning, and have a little talk with Jesus to make it right." Anybody know what a prayer wheel is? Well, if you just Google prayer wheel when you get home. And you'll find that it's, it's Buddhist. 
It's Eastern mystical religion. They use prayer wheels to keep track of what they're praying. Just keep praying the same stuff. So, you know, you never know what's going to creep into your hymn book. That's why we don't have hymn books. We just have a screen. Every misconception about prayer is first a misconception about God. And people think, if I just continue to ask for the same thing, God's finally going to relent. Slot machine hit the jackpot. Verse 8, do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So I don't have to keep inserting the, the coins and feel like that somehow is going to wear God down. God knows what I need before I even ask. Well, then one question, if you're awake and you're thinking, is well, why should I ask? If you already know what I need. Because God's objective is for us to always remember our complete dependence upon Him. Prayer is an acknowledgement that I am absolutely dependent upon God for every good thing that comes into my life. And so God says, I want you to ask for that as a reminder to you. Prayer is not benefiting God, it's benefiting you. God already knows. So if I come with a list of things to God, as if God doesn't know, that's showing a misconception about the all-knowing God. And we get impatient in our prayers with God. God, you know, it's double-digit unemployment down here. You know, I know you're busy dealing with a typhoon over in Bangladesh, but, you know, when you get time, if you can check this unemployment thing out in Michigan. And I, meanwhile, I'll be your newscaster. I'll keep you informed about everything that's going on down here. And the truth is, God knows every piece of it. And so every misconception about prayer is first a misconception about God, and fear is nurtured in ignorance about God. Sometimes that ignorance, things we don't know, are revealed in the way that we pray. But in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, don't pray those ways, verses 5 through 8. But then, in beginning in verse 9, he says, this is the way you should pray. This then is how you should pray, and he starts with our Father. So one of the things that we have got to know about God in order to avoid having fear nurtured in ignorance about God is that this God is none other than our Father. Now what is that, what's that about? What's the significance of that, that He's our Father? Well, if you were to read through the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, the first 39 of the 66 books in your Bible, as you read through that, you will find God referred to as Father very infrequently, just a handful of times. God had not revealed Himself to His people as our Father with the intimate relationship that Jesus now comes, who is displaying the Father as no other prophet could, because the prophets spoke about God, but Jesus is the God about whom they spoke. And so God is now with us. And he says, now you approach God as our Father. That's a radically different idea. And most scholars believe, and, and I agree, that Jesus, when he walked the earth, spoke in a language called Aramaic. So that when Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9, our Father, he was using the Aramaic word for Father, which is a four-letter word, Abba, A-B-B-A, Abba. -B -B -A, Abba. 
we find it actually used in Galatians 4 we find it used in Romans chapter 8 as well we because we've been adopted into God's family we cry out to him Abba father Aramaic it's roughly equivalent to our word for daddy so what do you know about God well you know that this God already knows before you ask and you know that this God not only knows but the question is does this God care and you know that he cares because he's your father because he's your Abba because you can come to him as you would daddy with that kind of intimacy so it is not just that God knows and God is capable think about this for a moment isn't it the case that one can know your plight know your need and be capable of meeting it but not care enough to do so but the Bible is telling us that God not only knows that God is not only capable but God also cares and the way you know that he cares is because the relationship that you have with him or can have with him is that of a child to a father. And so the disciples' prayer, where Jesus gives that in Matthew 6, and then we're going to look on page 29 at Luke's version of Jesus' words. Both of those, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and what Luke has in Luke chapter 12, they're both, they both take place in what we call the Sermon on the Mount. You're all familiar with that phrase, the Sermon on the Mount? It's Jesus giving a sermon, sermon on a mountain. Sermon on the Mount. But here's why the whole Mount thing is really important. Because we saw last week the manna story. You guys remember that if you were here last week? And we saw that God loves to come through at the 11th hour, just like he did in the wilderness wanderings of his people for 40 years in the desert after they had been released from bondage in Egypt. We saw there that God loves to come through and deliver at the 11th hour. We saw why he wants that. Because he doesn't want his people worrying about tomorrow. I'll take care of you today. Tomorrow will, will be today when we get there. And I'll take care of you that day. So don't worry about it. So God is teaching in this lesson. But do you remember that God in Exodus chapter 20 reveals himself to his people and gives his law from a mountain. From Mount Sinai. And now you have one greater than Moses, the Bible tells us, who is here. Who comes to another mountain, and the difference could not be more stark. There is the lightning, and there is the cloud, and the, and the, and the booming voice from Mount Sinai. And no one can draw near. Moses is afraid to go before God. You all remember that. And God is letting his people know. He's revealing himself. He's making himself known as a holy God that you approach. You, you have no right to approach unless he makes a way for you to do that. And then you come to the New Testament and God has come in the flesh in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he comes to a mountain and he talks in a regular voice. And he bids people come near, gather around. Gather around God Almighty as I speak to you. And there's, no, and there's no cloud, and there's no booming voice, and there's no lightning, and there's no none of that. There's draw near, come near. And in the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus is revealing about God is, I am one greater than Moses. You heard it said, do you remember in Matthew 5, 
that you shall not, and he goes through the things that Moses wrote from God, but I say to you, I am able to say to you on my own authority because I am God. Here is the way it works. But now I am bidding you, listen to me. Come near to me, your God. And here's how you pray, our Father. And in Matthew 6 and then in Luke chapter 12, this God, the new lawgiver, the one who is greater than Moses on this new mountain, is now revealing stupendous things about God so that we can know these things and have confidence in these things and therefore not be anxious and not be in fear because of any ignorance about God. And what does he tell us about himself there? Well, that's page 29. Page 29, week 3. You see the title there? The King comes close and he talks about money. Now we're going to see why he talks about money in just a bit, but the part I've been talking about is the king comes close. He's not at a distance. He comes close. And he says, listen to me and come to me and gather around me. And so on page 29 it says, this week you'll go from Exodus to the Sermon on the Mount. The story about manna will be in view, but Jesus will adorn it even more than he says when he says to you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat or about your body, what you will wear, fear and your money are now the targets. This week, consider a familiar passage from the part of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, do not worry. But read the introduction because he's specifically addressing money, but it's all built on this manna story. Look at the bottom of page 29. Then Jesus said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I'll store my grain and my goods. I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. Then Jesus said to his followers, his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. What you eat or about your body, what you wear, life is more important than food, and the body is more than clothes. And that man of story was Moses, and now it's Jesus. It's God coming to you. Gather around me. Coming near. And here's what he says. And we want to go through an, kind of an exposition of Jesus' words so that we know about God and therefore do not fall prey to the fear that comes out of, out of ignorance. And so on page 30, it says his words, middle of page 30, begin with the warning, watch out. Could one of the reasons that you worry be that you love possessions and you want more? We love our things and we're anxious when something we love is threatened. Greed lives in every human heart. What keeps you from hearing warnings about greed? Well, Jesus says it's this, the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, the desires of other things come in and choke the word and they make it unfruitful in Mark chapter 4. Now, what should I really then be worried about? That's what I should be worried about. 
What Jesus is saying is, here's what's most important. What's most important is not the stuff you have or you don't have. That's all within my caring and capable control. What you should really worry about, what you should really be concerned about, is that you're worried about that. What should really concern us is that that is so important to us. Because it says something about us. It says that we don't trust God. It says that we're not satisfied in God. It says that in order for me to be content, I have to know what I'm going to have in place, and I want what I want to be in place, both tomorrow and next week and next year. And Jesus is saying something very profound. Look, life is more important than that. There are more important matters. And so what you should really be worried about, what you should really be concerned about, is that we're fixated on these kinds of things. The fact that money plays such a major role in the anxieties that so many of us feel. And for honest, all of us do from time to time. But the fact that it does that says something about what we believe is most important. And so one author has said this, look, if, I, if you show me your checkbook, you show me a window into your heart. And he's really just quoting Jesus there from the same passage in Matthew 6. Matthew 6 and verse 21. For where your treasure is, you all remember, there will your heart be also. And so Jesus speaks to us. He says, come near. I want to talk to you about this greed because it says something important and something dangerous about you. Bottom of page 30. The question is, shouldn't you care about your financial needs? Absolutely. But Jesus cares too. He's speaking with compassion to a community that for the most part was poor by today's standards. And if they chose to follow Jesus, they'd probably slip further down that economic ladder. But greed is unrelated to the size of our bank accounts. Greed is about what we want. Because these wants, that is these things we love, can be deceitful and hide, we need to bring as many of them into the open as we can. And so that's why the question on page 31 that I encourage you to look at this week asks you about those things. Bring them into the open because they can indeed be so deceitful. And as you go through this, middle of page 31, be prepared to find these mixed allegiances. You know, there are times where, Lord, I believe and I trust, but help my unbelief, said Thomas. And that's true of you, isn't it? It's true of me. And so all of us are going to find ourselves to be a mixed bag. And in order for that bag to be more mixed and increasingly more mixed with trust in God and a diminishing value on things, I have to bring them out into the open and be very honest about them. So Jesus talks to us about what's really important. And he says this idea that you are so fixated on stuff and on money and on possessions, which emanate from the wants, the desires, the greed in our heart, that's the real problem. It's not not having enough. It's that we care so much about not having that. And then he says, I want to persuade you. And he gives us some words that are, in my view, astounding. Beginning on page 31. We should be encouraged because the king speaks to us as our father. And the words he speaks are beautiful words that woo us to himself. 
more than they are edicts which were to blindly to which were to blindly submit. And listen to what Jesus says. Do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food, the body is more than clothes. Now consider. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn. God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than birds? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider the lilies. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. That's how God clothes the grass of the field. Here today, tomorrow thrown into the fire. How much more will he clothe you? Oh, you. And put your name there. (laughs) Oh, Ken. Oh, John. Put your name there of little faith. And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. The pagan world runs after all such things. Your father knows you need them. Seek his kingdom. These things will be given to you as well. Now in our time this morning, we want to go through those marvelous words of Jesus. And see what it is he is telling us here so that we can know him. And knowing him and knowing how he cares... We can be released from the anxiety that comes from ignorance of Him. And so I encourage you to, as best you can, this coming week, answer the question at the bottom of page 32, top of page 33. But let's go through, beginning on page 33, each of these things Jesus says. He makes His case and He lays one appeal upon another. Consider the ravens, they do not store, sow or reap, have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than birds? And the assumption is that these common birds are well cared for, and they are. They're the ultimate survivors. You simply don't have to worry about the ravens in the neighborhood going hungry. God cares for a bird that's not particularly attractive or unique. What Jesus is saying is God cares that way. He'll surely care for you, one made in God's image. God cares for that bird that's not unique, but he would not particularly attractive or unique, but he'll care for you. You are God's offspring in a way that they are not. You call God your father, they don't. Your father certainly is more concerned about the details of your life than the ravens. And then with a wink, Jesus essentially says, It should be a little humbling for you to learn wisdom from a bird. They don't amass riches, they do fine. Why would you, child of God, amass riches? And so you have some questions to ask them. Probing questions on page 34. And so Jesus cares for these unattractive birds. And the question is then, in comparison to them, made in the image of God as his child, who knows him as Abba Father, is he not going to to care for you? They don't have to amass. They don't have to worry. How much more should you not have to amass or worry? And Jesus then goes on. He doesn't just give the example of the birds, but the bottom of page 34, he he cares about our worries. And he keeps trying to persuade us that he cares about our worries. One by giving this example of the, the birds, but now he goes on. Bottom of page 34. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? Since you cannot do that, why do you worry about everything else? And so Jesus is saying, this is what you should know about God. 
Life has come to you from Him. Life is a gift to you from Him. It will end on His timetable, no sooner, no later. Worrying about it will not change it in the least. And so as His gift, enjoy it while you have it. And trust that He knows exactly the timetable that is best for you and best for His larger plan for His world. Top of page 35. Your Father gives life and takes it. You don't have the power to take one more step beyond what your Father gives you. Eat well, exercise, avoid motorcycles. Wear sunblock. But you know those can't promise an extra hour of life. But Jesus is still not done. He then draws our attention to a common daylily. Middle of page 35. Which no one planted or tends, has no eternal significance, and yet it's adorned with beauty. At the bottom of page 35, the author goes on to talk about how it's very unfortunate that we have gotten this view of God, particularly of as revealed through Jesus, that God does not care about beauty, that God is simply a functional God. As long as something gets the job done, I don't care how it looks. But Jesus is saying, I'm the one who created this beauty. And this beauty is seen in things that are thrown into the fire. Relatively insignificant things with no eternal value to them. How much more do I care about the beauty with which your life is to be arrayed? When we get to the end of his passage here, he's going to say, Seek ye first the kingdom of God. What do you think the kingdom of God's going to look like? And we're going to have some people who are going to be so miserly in this life, they're going to walk through the pearly gates and they're going to go, who approved this? Did this get three sign-offs? Isn't this a waste of money? Don't you think this is a bit extravagant? You think about if you were living in the first part of your Bible, Solomon's Temple. Solomon's temple was no bigger than a basketball court. It had billions of dollars of billions of dollars of gold in it. God is not miserly with his people either. And he is telling us that I will take care of you now, and you are looking forward to a lavish kingdom. And so you've got these daylilies, and Solomon in all his splendor was not arrayed like them. And so bottom of page 35. A glance at creation tells you that Jesus cares about beauty. How he developed a reputation as a no-frills function before beauty rabbi is hard to understand. It may have fit for John the Baptist, not Jesus. Are you concerned about your appearance? You must have forgotten our Heavenly Father cares for more than our basic needs. He's serving you with the ultimate beauty treatments. He's preparing you to be his bride. Remember, he cares about more than material things. Not less than, but he cares about more than that. So he's making you into his image to be his bride when he comes for us. And if you're still unmoved, page 36, Jesus identifies our dilemma this way. Oh, you of little faith. Right in the middle of all of this, he's trying to tell you this is what you should know about God and therefore it should alleviate your fears because fear is nurtured in ignorance. So don't be ignorant about God and his ways. And so I'm piling one after another statements about God and His care and His concern and His capability for you. And in the midst of that, He says, Oh, you of little faith. 
after looking at how God takes care of the lilies and the ravens, and the fact that the truth is, is it's stupid, that I can't really add another day to my life, I know that, and yet I worry about it. And in the middle of that, when he says, oh, you of little faith, that is a dagger, at least for me. With all of that being true about God, how can I have little faith? If you all remember what faith means, the word faith in your New Testament is the same word that is translated belief. Same word. O ye of, O you of little belief. O you of little faith. And this idea of believing in faith, they come from uh, words that have to do with credibility. In fact, the word for, the Latin word for faith is, uh, we get fiduciary from it. When someone has a fiduciary responsibility, it means they have a responsibility of trust to some other people. We get the, the Latin word for belief is credo. We get credibility from it. We trust someone because they have credibility. And so faith and belief mean at their heart trust. You could put the word in there, O ye of little trust. The truth of the matter is, you don't trust me. The reason you're anxious, the reason you fear, is because ultimately you don't believe, you don't trust me. That's what Jesus is saying to us. And that's why it's so convicting to me and should be to you. When we worry, we are saying, I don't trust God to take care of me in even greater ways than He takes care of birds, unattractive, non-unique birds, and the lilies of the field. O ye of little faith, page 36, we divide faith into portions. We take a percentage and we invest it in the world. Whatever's left, we invest in the kingdom of God. For some things, such as our eternal destiny, we trust Jesus. For others, such as money and a long list of other items that we love, we reserve the right to make our own decisions. Little faith means that our hearts are set on our own desires rather than our Father's care. You know, I think about this kind of like a, uh, a portfolio. You know, you don't know what I mean, a financial portfolio. So your portfolio, if you, <laughs> and most of us don't have any finances to, to portfolio. But just dream that you did. And you have, you, know, you have some here, which means I trust you with this much. You know, you put $500 into this investment account. I'm entrusting 500 bucks to you. I trust you to handle my 500 bucks. And maybe you got 5,000 total to invest, and you've got it in 10 different investments of 500 each. And so I trust this guy with 500 and this guy with 500, but notice what you don't do. You don't trust anybody with all 5,000. In fact, what do the financial planners tell you to do? Diversify. Why do you diversify? Am I right? Preach it, right? All right. Talking to our financial planner over here. They say diversify. Why? Because you can't trust any one investment. But what Jesus is saying is this. I don't want you diversifying your trust. I don't want $500 of your trust. I don't want $1,000 of your trust. I don't want you diversifying. I want you to put your full trust, your full faith, your full belief in me because I have shown you time and again that I care, that I am capable, and that I will take care of you. 
And so don't diversify your portfolio of trust with God. And so you have some questions to ask at the bottom of page 36. How do you divvy, do you divvy up your faith? I encourage you to ask yourself why and on what. Page 37. Jesus is not quite finished. Do not set your heart, middle of page 37, on what you'll eat or drink. Do not worry about it, because the pagan world runs after all such things. Your Father knows that you need them. Now here's how I'll summarize that. What we tend to do is we say, look, isn't it natural for all of us to concern ourselves with things like food and clothing and where we're going to, a roof over our head? Isn't it natural to be worried about that? And the answer to that is absolutely, it's natural. But this is the very reason that Jesus condemns it. Because it's natural. Do you see he says, for the pagan world runs after all of that? That's why they do, because, in fact, it's natural. Everybody comes into the world with a particular nature. And it is natural from our sinful nature for us to discount God. To not regard God. To not make God the major player in our lives. And so it indeed is natural, but that's the problem. Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount, in Luke 12, and in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, you have a radically reordered, transformed view of life that is not a natural way of looking at it. It's a supernatural way of looking at it. And so it's not never enough for the Christian to say, but doesn't everybody fill in the blank? Yeah, everybody does fill in the blank. That's exactly the reason you don't. Because you have a radically different view. Your values have been transformed. You are now a child of the Heavenly Father. And so you look at it completely differently than does the pagan world. And if we don't look at it differently, if we look at it the same way as the pagan world, it raises some very troubling questions then about our relationship. Who is our Father? If it doesn't make that difference in the most basic issues of life, then we need to ask ourselves, do I really, really trust this Father? Do I have a relationship as a child with this Father? And then lastly, on page 38, Jesus offers the kingdom. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom. And his righteousness and all of these other things will be added to you. So seek the kingdom. So what does it mean to seek the kingdom? Well, the kingdom is going to come. Jesus said, pray this way. Thy kingdom come, your kingdom come, your will be done. Now, when we pray your kingdom come, we are not saying, you know, I hope this kingdom thing actually comes to fruition. So, Lord, I'm praying that it will happen so that you've got this on your checklist. Don't forget that kingdom thing you promised. We don't pray your kingdom come. Because we think it may not it may not happen. Jesus has promised it, it's going to happen. What we're saying in the six petitions of the Lord's Prayer, they are these Your kingdom come, your will be done, uh, on earth as it is first one is hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Fourth is forgive us give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our, our debts. And lead us not into temptation. 
six requests that Jesus gives. And they are all expressing the desires of our heart. So when we say your kingdom come, we're not saying, Lord, I hope this kingdom really does come to fruition. What we're saying is, I desire for your kingdom to come. I want your kingdom to come. We're not saying, Lord, your will be done as if the Lord's will won't be done. The Lord's will will be done. We're saying, Lord, I desire for your will be to be done. When we say, may your name be made holy, hallowed be your name, we are not saying, I hope that your name, rep representing your character, will be holy. It is. We're saying that I desire that. I desire for your fame, your character to be spread and to be made holy in the hearts of people, to be set apart in the hearts of people. We're expressing our desires. So how do I seek the kingdom? The kingdom is going to come. How do I seek it? I seek the kingdom by seeking the king. I seek the kingdom by wanting to be with and about and like the king. And so I'm constantly having, you are constantly having to compare and contrast your desires and your words and your actions with those of the king of the kingdom. And how do I know if I'm a seeker of the kingdom? Is it, it is, do I value and love and honor and pursue the king at all costs? Now if you do that, Jesus says, seek ye first the kingdom. Be like the king. And all of this other stuff you won't have to worry about. All these other things, the food and the clothes, and all of that will be added to you. And so page 38 says, this is a good deal. When you turn away from securing your own kingdom, which teeters on bankruptcy anyway, <laughs> you get the true kingdom. Know the kingdom and seek it. And that's the alternative to worry. This kingdom was inaugurated with power by Jesus, who's literally Jesus Christ, Jesus the Anointed One, Jesus the, the King. And so we've got all of these blessings that He bestows upon us. Bottom of page 38. Think of what the Spirit, who is the presence of Jesus Christ, has given. You've got a whole list of these things there. And they are called spiritual blessings. Top of page 39. Spiritual means they're given by the Spirit. Not that they're imaginary or they only reside in a distant future. The kingdom is actually more real than your day-to-day -day world because this world, however attractive it may at times seem, is passing away. Like a once glorious house, it's not going to last. It's not eternal. But spiritual blessings are absolutely permanent. And so Jesus ends this way. Do not be afraid, little flock. Your Father is pleased to give you the kingdom. Praise God. Sell your possessions. Give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted. Where no thief comes near, no moth destroys. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. How can I have that carefree, anxious-free, fear-free view of possessions and things? It's because I trust the King. And I trust the King to give what He has promised. Do not fear. Your Father is pleased to give you the kingdom. The question is, do you believe that? Will you live this way, that way this week? 
that I believe that. Now, we're going to close in prayer. But I want to call your attention to, uh, each week, the insert that you have in your program, in your uh, notebook. And it's just got some things that are coming up. We had our hayride this last Friday. That's on there. We had a blast, if you were able to come. We had almost more people than Tom's parking lot could accommodate. But uh, overflow crowd had a great time, great weather. Uh, coming up, you see some of the things listed there. This week, ladies, there's some things for you. Moms and Tots Day out on Tuesday morning. You can get information at the information table. This Thursday evening is the ladies' book study at Peggy Charbonneau's house in Woodhaven. Maps to her place and the books will be, they'll be studying are on the resource table there. The November 20th, you see that? November 20th is a brunch from 10 a.m. to about noon at our house. If you want to be part of that brunch, if you're new to our church, we'd like to get to know you that way. So let the folks at the resource table know or just let me know on your way out today. And then last, we have November 21, baptism. And uh, we schedule baptisms periodically throughout the year because we always have new folk coming in who hear the gospel, respond to it, and need to follow the Lord in obedience and baptism. If you've never been baptized, if you've never been immersed, that means that you have been dunked in water to symbolize the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's what baptism is. See me about that. It's a very important matter. All right, let's pray and ask the Lord to bring us back safely next week. Father, we thank you for these moments that we've been able to look into this material about your care for your world and in particular for your people. We thank you that we can come to you in this moment and every moment and call you our Father and know that that's the relationship that we have with you. We thank you for the intimate relationship that you bid us to have with you through Jesus Christ who has, who has died on our behalf, shed his blood in order to tear the wall that was between us up into so that now we can come into the most holy place of the holy God. And you tell us to come with confidence. You tell us to cast all our cares upon you because you care for us. You've shown us that care in abundant ways, most profoundly in the giving of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. You care for your people. And you show us that care in your world in general, as we've seen from the words of the Lord Jesus today. And so, Lord, help me help us this week not to be people of little trust, of little faith. And help us to seek the King in the way we live this week. Help us to desire that your kingdom come. And in the meantime, that we want to live and look like, live for and look like the King. And as we do that, help us to have the have the peace of God that transcends all understanding. That all of these things indeed will be added to us. We don't need to run around like the pagans. You have radically reoriented our perspective. Help us to live accordingly. But we can't do it on our own. We need your help in order to live these radically different lives. We ask you for it. We praise you for it. We ask you to bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.